Beloved, one of the well-known practices of someone that speaks or even someone that writes is you want to minimize and at all possible eliminate filler words. Um, you know, or beginning statements with so and so forth. Uh, that in writing, uh, even at times when I go through and I'm preparing my sermon notes and even having quotes that I'm bringing out from books, sometimes I will go through and remove that's in the quote just to make them a little tidier and crisper for your blessing and for my blessing as well. It's interesting, the Roman poet Horace, who is one of the most famous poets uh, in Rome, in ancient Rome, he was the one who I believe made famous the word carpe diem or the phrase carpe diem seize the day from a pagan hedonistic perspective. The Roman poet Horace, when he was instructing his students, he told them, do not insert a deity. Do not insert a god, a lowercase g, god into the plot unless it is absolutely necessary for the situation to untangle a tangled mess that can't be untangled except by anyone but a God. He said, never let a deity interfere with your plot unless a difficulty presents itself worthy of a God's, lowercase God's, unraveling. And this is coming from an unsaved pagan. But he is spot on in one sense. The problem, the mess, the entanglement of sin is Nothing that a human being can do. Only God, the one true God of the universe, can untangle it. We do understand that the world is full of morals. By virtue of God's common mercy, even pagans like Horus, people will want to have some set of morals, the kind of morals and the structure that they will want and gravitate towards will come from ultimately selfish desires according to their own whims rather than what God lays out. But the problem is whatever level of morals, whether it's man-made morals or the God-ordained law that he gives us in the Bible, we can't do this. We can't do this. Paul, as he is writing the letter to the church in Ephesus, please open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Paul takes great pains, especially in the first part of the letter, in the first three chapters of laying the foundation of what God has already done. But even now, as we're launching into the latter half of the letter, getting towards the end of chapter 4, even as God is, through the Apostle Paul, driving home what the ramifications and the consequences and the behaviors that should flow from the newness of life we enjoy in Christ, he continues to bring us back to what God has already done. God has done this, therefore you go and do that. Beloved, please follow along as I read the passage we have for us this morning, which is Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 25 through 30. Again, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. And 
Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it in your hearts, in your mind, in your actions, in our actions as such. You know, it's interesting when Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave, one of the first things that Jesus said was, unbind him, take this grave clothes off, and presumably put on new fresh clothes. It's interesting, grave clothes were perfectly fitting for Lazarus when he was in the tomb as a corpse. Well, beloved, that is where we're at here in Ephesians chapter 4. We saw back in verses 23 through 24 that Paul is telling us to put off and put on, put off the old man and put on the new man. We understand that by virtue of our conversion, at our justification, when God put life where there was no life before, that he took off the old man and he draped us in the righteous, perfectly white robes of Christ. So there is an already aspect of this great work of God, which is the foundation for all the exhortations that God gives us here in Ephesians and throughout the entire Bible. And we also understand that there is a not yet portion of it, that we have a responsibility to continue to put off the old way of thinking and to continue to put on the new way of thinking, to continue to put off the grave clothes, so to speak, and to continue to put on the grace clothes. Now, beloved, the point here is that those of us that are in the family of God, those of us that are in the kingdom of God as with passports that are stamped Gilbert and, more importantly, in heaven, that we will be different than the rest of the world. We will think differently. We will talk differently. We will act differently. We will have different motives. We will worship differently. We will go different places. We will have different aspirations by virtue of the conversion and the work and the growing ministry of even the Holy Spirit within us. And Paul would want us to understand here, as with the rest of his writing, that it's not merely about those who claim, more to the point, it's about those who prove. It's not about a past event, a past event of praying a sinner's prayer or walking an altar or whatever other mechanism. Rather, it's about the present virtues. To be sure, Paul has made it very clear, even here in this letter back in chapter 2, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. But this new life that Christ gives us will produce works, and that is what Paul is bringing out here. It's not about a past event, it's about present virtues. And this walk we have in Christ, back in verse 1 of chapter 4, and again in verse 17, our lifestyle should demonstrate that we are living a different life with a different perspective. And Paul, with his shepherd's heart, would even want anyone to understand that if there's not some significant element of change, if there's not a different lifestyle, it's very possible that man or that woman is not a different person. Well, Beloved, as we look at these six verses, what we'll see are three prime example areas of what it means to put off and put on. Again, in verses 23 through 24, Paul there kind of gave this general statement of put off and put on what is already accomplished in our life, practically speaking, in our walk in Christ. But what he does now is he drills down and gives some very specific examples. Three prime areas of speech, anger, and labor. And then in verse 30, 
Paul gives a shocking interruption. He's done this before, where there's this kind of seemingly out-of-context verse that appears, and we'll look and see, why did Paul put that in at that point in time? Paul, again, wants us to know that these new behaviors that we'll give by way of example flow from new heart attitudes. They are tied together. He wants us to understand that sound doctrine, the sound doctrine of chapters 1 through 3, and even the doctrines that continue to pepper this latter part of the letter produces sound living. That we continually exchange the old natural vices for the new supernaturally enabled virtues. So let's look at the first uh, example, the prime example area Paul gives us, which is namely speech. Now, one of the most fundamental expressions, beloved, of your newness of life will be your newness of speech, the new way in which you use, the new way in which I use as a child of God, as a son of God, use my tongue. We understand that our speech can be sharp and bitter or it can be sweet and soothing. It can be loyal or it can be disloyal. It can be healing or it can be harming. Your speech can be used to either build up or to tear down. It can protect and encourage or it can bite and devour. The use of our tongue can bring comfort or it can cause grief. It can make peace or cause war. Now, what Paul does here through these different example areas he gives is he gives a negative, a negative admonition, then he gives a positive exhortation, then he gives a reason or a motivation, a negative, then a positive, then a reason. Um, and in the second one, in the anger, he actually switches and does the positive first. But first, let's look at the negative. He says, therefore, laying aside falsehood. Laying aside falsehood. This is right after he said, put off and put on in, in verses 22 through 24. You lay aside the old man and put on the new man. The therefore ties verse 25 here back to the ones that went right before. And what he's saying again is, he's saying, take that old cloth you have, that old garb you have, and shake it off. Lay it aside. For example, in Acts 7 verse 58, at the stoning of Stephen, You'll read these words. When they had driven him, Stephen, out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So in the same way someone would take off their robe and lay it aside, what Paul is doing here is he says very particularly, you Christian man, you Christian woman, lay aside falsehood. Literally in the original, lay aside the lie. Ta sudas. Lay aside the lie. Now we know that Satan is the father of lies. We know that an unregenerate man or woman has lying as a natural part, as a natural outflow from the heart. But when we think of the lie, is there a lie that would be kind of a capstone, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of a summary of all the lies that flow out from sinful man and even from Satan himself? And I think the best answer would be to go back to the Garden of Eden and say, and look at when Satan said to Eve, you will be like God. So in a sense, the lie is anything that displaces God and puts self in the place of God or puts an idol, some other idol, in the place of God. And what Paul is saying is lay that aside as 
a summary command for all aspects of lying and of dishonesty and of exaggeration. And we know that God hates lying. Turn, for example, to the wisdom of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 12, verses 19 through 22. We'll get a brief picture and a reminder of God's perspective on lying. Proverbs 19, excuse me, uh, Proverbs 12, make that Proverbs 12, verse 19. You read this. Proverbs 12, 19. Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who defies evil, but counselors of peace have joy. No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Watch this. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. So Solomon does precisely what Paul does. He gives a positive and he gives a negative. Solomon does it as a Hebrew parallelism. And what he's reminding us there, what he's telling us is God detests lying. J.C. Ryle, the pastor, said there are three things that men ought never to trifle with. A little poison, a little false doctrine, and a little sin. Because he understands, we should understand, beloved, you and I should understand that defective theology and the lie, lies are what feed into false doctrine. A little distortion here, a little shading of the truth here, a tiny bit of compromise there. Defective theology produces defective lives. And Paul is warning against that. That's the negative. But now back here in verse 25, he moves from the negative to the positive. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. Uh, rather, instead, speak truth. This flows well with what we saw back in verse 15. Speak the truth in love, or literally, truthing in love. What Paul is doing here in verse 25, he's actually directly quoting from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 8, verse 16, where Zechariah said, speak the truth to one another. That's the quote. Zechariah continued, judge with truth for peace in your gates. So, beloved, the truth of God, the truth that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit is the foundation. The truth of God we are to regard objectively. We should enjoy intellectually, and we should apply to our lives rigorously. Now, having said this, we should understand, you may remember I shared that in my early Christian days, when I was very low in maturity, that I had a zealousness for the truth, but it was lacking maturity, it was lacking compassion. I love the idea of speaking the truth, but I stopped reading in verse 15 in love. In the same way here, we understand that speaking the truth is balanced with all of the commands and all of the exhortation God gives us. And the fact that something is true does not demand that it must be said. There's wisdom behind that. For example, when Paul wrote kind of the parallel letter to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 4, verse 6, there you'll read Paul writing to that church, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. And I think the reality is, in our human frailty, we often get this backwards. Rather than having our speech always being with grace, saturated with grace, and seasoned with a little bit of salt, more often, or more often than it should be, our speech is 
full of salt and our speech is salty and seasoned with just a little bit of grace here or there. So beloved, the point is it takes wisdom to speak truth, each one of us with one another, with our neighbor. So the negative and the positive. And finally, we move to the motive, the reason behind this exhortation. He says at the end of verse 25, for we are members one of another. So we know from the beautiful metaphors that Paul has given, been giving us here in Ephesians that we are, as a local church even, a kingdom of God, part of the kingdom of God. We are a building, a temple. We are the family of God, and we are the body of Christ. But the image he's bringing out here is the body. Same language he used in Romans 12, 5, where Paul said, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. But the context, the way in which Paul is using this here is in the positive admonition and the, excuse me, the negative admonition and the positive exhortation. And what if our body parts started lying to one another? What if our eye, we were driving in the car and our eye decided to lie to us and said, well, I think I'll just shade the truth a little bit. There's not a curve in the road coming up. There's, there's not a semi-truck that's passing right in front of us. What would be the end of our eye lying to our body in that context? It would be disaster and destruction. That's what Paul is saying. We are members of the body of Christ. So falsehood has no place in our interaction with one another. John Chrysostom, the 4th century pastor and expositional preacher, said, if the eye sees a serpent, does it deceive the foot? If the tongue tastes bitter, will it deceive the stomach? And the point that he's bringing out, the point that Paul is bringing about here, the point God is bringing out to us is that fellowship in the body of Christ and the family of God is built on trust, and trust is built on truth, on truth managed well, lovingly dispensed. Mackay, you may remember the Scottish uh, president of Princeton, that was saved as a wee lad on a hill in Scotland reading Ephesians by himself, Mackay said, a lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. So, beloved, our speech is a measure of, it's a motivation towards, and it's a metric or a metal testing of the expression of our unity, our progression to maturity, and the conservation of the purity that God is calling us to here as we're getting towards the end of Ephesians 4 and into Ephesians chapter 5. So speech. The second area of prime example that Paul deals with here is anger. And the point here is that there is, we should understand as Christians, there is a righteous anger that we are to bear and there is an unrighteous anger that we are to beware. And this is the one case where Paul flips it and he gives us the positive first and the negative. The positive, simply stated, is be angry. The righteous anger to bear. Now, what does Paul mean by that when he says be angry? He wants us to have the righteous anger. He wants us to be angry over things that makes God angry. We need to be angry against the right things, and this righteous anger is necessary. The psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 53 said, burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. 
We know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ had righteous anger. Twice he cleansed the temple from the filthy, lucre-loving money changers that were defiling the temple of God. And he fashioned the cord of whip and drove them out. We know later that also Christ was righteously angry, had righteous anger over the hard-heartedness, the stubbornness of the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel, the scribe and the Pharisees. So we should understand that there are, at times, there's a temptation for believers to say, well, I, just, I shouldn't be angry about anything, but a believer that is unwilling to bear righteous anger, we need to recognize that that ultimately denies God. It damages oneself and the body, and it encourages the spread of sin. So we can and must be angry over that which grieves God. We must we can and must be angry over that which harms the innocent. We should understand that as we are all called to be peacemakers, that a true peacemaker will at times have to be a peacebreaker. There was an occasion, there was a context where Christ said, I did not come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword, to set a man against his household even. So there is a context, so we recognize that. But, here's where the negative comes in. But, we need to realize that there is also an unrighteous anger to beware. That's why he continues, he says, be angry and yet do not sin. We remember that sin is crouching at the door. We remember that the enemy is crouching at the uh, door, or I should say prowling like a lion, ready to find someone to devour what Paul is saying here is in our human frailty, we need to be very, very guarded and careful so that the righteous anger doesn't morph into an unrighteous anger. He says, do not even let the sun go down on your anger. You see, the problem is righteous anger, even righteous anger, let alone un if we have unrighteous anger, we need to repent of it. We should recognize that. But even righteous anger can change into unrighteous anger and lead to sins like bitterness slander malice when it's not dealt with rightly quickly and appropriately and that's why he says do not let the sun go down on your anger don't nurse your anger midnight is coming the witching hour the witching time of dreams and the flesh is coming beloved you can think of it this way it's very easy if you're to light a match it's very easy to puff out a lit match but when the entire building is on fire, it's very, very difficult to put out that great blaze. That's what Paul is saying, and that's why he says when there are serious issues, they need to be dealt with right away. Don't let them fester. Resolve them quickly. So that's the positive. That's the negative. Now he again gives the reason. He says, verse 27, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Do not give the devil an opportunity. What he's saying here is if we don't deal with anger, even righteous anger, quickly and appropriately, that gives a foothold, an opportunity, that gives a place to the enemy. It's interesting. The Apostle Paul in his writings, when he would talk about the adversary, he would normally use the title Satan. Uh, but this is one of two places where he uses devil. Devil is diablos. It means the slanderer, the accuser. And he uses it here, and then he uses it also in chapter 6, verse 11. So we can ask the question, why did Paul use his less frequently used title, slander or accuser of the devil here? 
And the context, again, remember, is words. It's our speech. It's our language. All the way back from the men, the godly men that God gives as gifts to the church of the apostles and the prophets and pastors and teachers. And the whole dimension of the revelation that God has given to the apostle Paul, I believe that's why Paul uses devil here in the context of that speech. Now, we can think in the context of what are the ramifications if we don't deal with anger appropriately and rightly in a timely manner, as he told us at the end of verse 26. In what way does that give the devil an opportunity? Well, it can certainly distort subsequent problems. Small can become large. It sets the stage for discouragement. When conflicts aren't resolved appropriately, it opens the way to resentment hatred, bitterness. It allows the anger to linger, fester, to percolate. Beloved, so when there are serious issues, when there's something that we're concerned with about a brother or a sister, we have two options. We need to prayerfully consider it and think through it. And option number one is, can we release that? Can we trust God to work that out? First Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. Can we just release our even concern about that? as far as the east is from the west. Would I be doing a disservice to my brother or to my sister if I were to just release that? So that's option number one. Option number two is to deal with the issue in a timely, gracious manner, directly, personally, privately. These are the two options that God gives us. So, speech, prime example area number one. Anger, prime example area number two. The third Example area is labor, work. Paul wants us to know that what our mouth says is one thing, very tremendously important to be sure, and what our actions show is an entirely different one. And he begins this area again with the negative in verse 28. He says, let him who steals, steal no longer. A direct statement from the eighth commandment, do not steal. Now, I have to admit, this is my go-to verse for biblical counseling. Just stop it. If you're stealing, stop stealing. Stop lying. Stop treating your wife poorly. Now, to be sure, we do understand that in our ministry of the word to one another, we don't just say, well, take three verses and call me in the morning. So there's a whole platform, a wonderful ministry of biblical counseling. And at the same time, there is a straightforward method. Just stop sinning. So, I do like this passage for those reasons. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones says in the context of stealing. What the doctor brings out is kind of a general statement about stealing and sinful man, but even in the context of how it applies to the Ephesians in their environment, and how similar that is to us here 2,000 years later, and some 50, 60 years later in America, rather than the doctor in London. This is what Lloyd-Jones said, quote, stealing is always one of the leading characteristics of a godless and irreligious society. They'd been steeped in it. They'd been brought up in it, and it had become such a matter of habit, of custom, and practice that at first they didn't realize there's anything even wrong in it. And ultimately, the trouble with the thief is he dislikes work. He's the sort of man who really despises honest work and labor. His idea is to have the maximum and to do the minimum. 
He's not particular as to how he does it or how he gets it, just as long as he gets it, end quote. Beloved, understand this. Stealing is selfish laziness. Before a man becomes a thief, he is a lazy sluggard. Solomon, in Proverbs 21, verse 25, said, The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving. It's interesting, when you follow the headlines, you may be aware that there's a surplus of jobs now, and people aren't availing themselves of the jobs. Why? Because they're getting free checks in the mail, one after another. I, like one person said, maybe somebody should start a rumor about a shortage of jobs so that everybody will panic and go out and get one. But I digress. Beloved, the point here is it's not enough. We move from the negative to the positive it's not enough for a thief to merely stop stealing the positive he says but rather let him labor performing with his own hands what is good and that is by the way the reason why i focus so much on the aspect of work and laziness and being a sluggard in the context of the thief because of what paul gives here in terms of the positive exhortation to the people of god rather let him labor working to the point of fatigue and His point here is we can't just remove the weed. We have to plant the flower. We can't just remove the old vice. We need to replace it with the new virtue. And we can think of examples of work ethic. Jesus, we aren't told much about his ministry in the workplace as a carpenter. But knowing who he is, we can say with absolute confidence that he had not just the greatest work ethic ever, but the perfect work ethic. So he worked hard, labored with his hand for years for the glory of his father. Paul worked day and night making tents so as to not be a burden to the church. Solomon, again, in Proverbs 28 verse 19 said, He who works his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty and plenty. Or, let's go to the writing of Paul. Turn over for a moment to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians 3 verses 10 through 12. The Apostle Paul says at the end of verse 10, If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Beloved, work, by the way, work and labor is not a consequence of the fall. Before the fall, God, we read in Genesis, God placed Adam in the garden to till the land. Now, because of the fall, because of the consequence of sin, because of the implementation of the second law of thermodynamics and the law of entropy, the ground will produce thorns and thistles, and man will work, we will work by the sweat of our brow. But labor is good, it's a gift from the Lord, we need to remember that. Back here in Ephesians 4, he gives the reason, he says, in order that, he may have something to share with him who has need. So the great charge from God here is not for us to work so that we get. It is for us to work so that we may be in a position to give. And by the way, this is the same 
thinking that Solomon had. I read to you the first part of Proverbs 21, verse 25 before. I'll read it again, but let me finish that verse to see how Solomon finishes. Proverbs 21, 25, the desire of the sluggard puts him to death for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving while the righteous gives and does not hold back. So same thinking, same mentality, same charge from Solomon and same charge from Paul, from God to us. And one example we could think of many, but think of Zacchaeus, the wee little man. Zacchaeus, who was the great Mochus, who was the tax collector. He was like the mob boss above all the other lower tax collectors who was fantastically rich because he had that tax collecting business, which was really an extortion business. And he climbed up in a tree because the wee little man the Lord wanted to see. And Christ saved him. And there was a tremendous immediate transformation in the heart of Zacchaeus, who was a thief. And in Luke 19, verse 8, Zacchaeus told Jesus, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. So what's impossible for man, the entanglement of sin, only God can unentangle or disentangle. And the impossible has happened. The thief has become the giver. The thief has become the giver. The taker has become the giver. And beloved, for you and me, when our heart is emancipated from idols, when our heart is unshackled, when the fetters are broken, it's amazing what falls out of our hands in terms of our giving because they first fell out of the clutches of our heart. So, speech, anger, labor, and in case we miss it the first time, Paul again goes back in verse 29 to speech. He turns from the use of our hands again to the use of our mouths with special focus in the context of our speech either being tearing down or building up, either edifying or destroying, making peace or making war, soothing or stabbing, healing or harming. And what we see in verse 29, beloved, is that God-honoring speech is pure in nature and wise in timing. He starts with the negative. This is the pure in nature. He says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. The uh, Greek word translated as unwholesome here, unwholesome does not capture the intensity of that word. That word means rotten, putrid, decaying, disease. And it's interesting, this word is used in only one other context in the New Testament. In the Gospel accounts, the same word here is used throughout the Gospel accounts to talk about rotten fruit, of rotten fruit, of bad fruit. So, we can ask the questions, why does Paul take this word, which normally is used to talk about rotten fruit, but use it in this context regarding our speech? And I think the reason is Paul wants us to know that diseased and putrid speech comes from a diseased and putrid heart. We need a heart transplant. And if God has already given us a new heart, what we are to do with that rotten piece of fruit, that language is don't eat it, don't use it, don't keep it. Throw it in the garbage where it belongs. That worm-infested apple, which I guess that's a Pacific North. We don't really have worms here in Arizona, right? Or at least maybe not here in the valley, but the, the fruit fly-infested fruit, you get the point there. Throw it in the garbage. You don't keep it and you don't eat it. It's recorded that Augustine, 
hung a sign on his dining room wall that said this, whoever speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. So that's the negative, but now Paul moves to the positive. He continues, verse 29, but only such a word as is good for edification, for building. And this edification, this building, we saw it back in verse 12 in terms of the purpose of the gifts of leadership that God gives to the church. We saw it again in verse 16 and again here, building, the bodybuilding. This is the bodybuilding ministry, the bodybuilding letter. The Irish pastor David Legg uh, said and recounted that when he was beginning his ministry, in his words, he said, a wise man told him this, any fool can wreck a church, but it takes godliness to build up a church. That is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, beware the speech that destroys, but cherish the speech that builds. The speech that builds the body of Christ is encouraging and comforting. It's teaching and admonishing, and it's healing. Again, Solomon, Proverbs 12, verse 18, there's one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Beloved, every time we open our mouth, it should be building, it should be fitting, it should be gracious. We have a new heart. You have a new heart that God has given you. And what flows out of that heart, what proceeds from the mouth is what begins in the heart, should be new speech that's enabled by God. So we're concerned with what we say because God-honoring speech is pure in nature, but we're also concerned with when we say it. God-honoring speech is also wise in timing. As we indicated before, there is truth and there is timing. That's why he says here, still verse 29, according to the need of the moment. Similar to what Solomon said, Proverbs 15, 23, a man has joy in an apt answer and how delightful is a timely word. Or chapter 25, verse 11, like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. So beloved, as we are analyzing and evaluating, we have something that we think should be said. We say, is it really necessary? Would I be doing a disservice to my brother or sister if I didn't say it? And once we've gotten past that, then say, is this the right timing? Are these the right circumstances? Beloved, that's the negative, that's the positive. And again, Paul here gives the reason. He finishes verse 29, so that it may give grace to those who hear. Just like the verse that we read before, Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt. Beloved, your gracious speech is a blessing to others, and it is a purifying influence even in the moral rot of the world. Salt, in ancient times, it's a flavor enhancer. I mean, I like salt, we understand that. But in the ancient world, it was used much more predominantly to preserve meat, to keep it from rotting. And that's the image Paul says here. It's a blessing, it's, it's a grace, it's a mercy to one another, and it lessens the moral rot of even the world itself. The story is told of Bios, who was supposedly one of the seven ancient wise men of Greece. And a donor had sent him an animal to be sacrificed, but the donor made the request, 
send back to me the best part of the animal and the worst part of the animal. And the fable says that Bios sent him back the best part and the worst part. He sent him back the tongue. Because the point is the tongue, our speech, can be the best mechanism by which we can bless the body, and it can also be the worst if unguarded. That's why David cried to the Lord in Psalm 141, verse 3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Or the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 50, verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples so that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. So, beloved, those are the three examples. But now in verse 30, we have this shocking interruption. We've seen the Apostle Paul do this at least a couple times before here in Ephesians where he has a train of thought and then he interrupts it. And what he does here is with verse 30 where he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, we ask the question, why did Paul throw in what we have as verse 30 right here? I mean, that statement there could be made anywhere. That's a true statement always. Well, we understand that the Holy Spirit of God, even when we think of Holy Spirit, we want to be careful that when we say that, we understand that that is his title. But we don't want to run so fast past that first, per, that first word, holy. Holy is part of his title. The Spirit of God is holy. It's also an adjective describing the otherness of God. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is co-equal and co-eternal. I think we can understand that an unbeliever can resist the Holy Spirit. But in the context of the way Paul is using this here, I don't believe an unbeliever can grieve the Holy Spirit the way a son of God, a daughter of God can. It takes someone in the family of God to grieve the Holy Spirit in the way in which Paul says this here. And by the way, the language here, what Paul is really saying is, he's saying, stop grieving the Holy Spirit. And I don't think he's picking on the Ephesian believers, saying that you are necessarily particularly bad. Paul himself, remember, he said, Lord, how much longer do I have to put up with this body of death? Why do I keep doing the things I don't want to do? Paul understood that all believers, that we still sin on this side of glory. And when we do that, it grieves the indwelling Holy Spirit. So God says to all of us, stop grieving the Holy Spirit. And I would say this, Beloved, that when God works in your life, there's no sin too small to grieve him. If you're here this morning and you're not trusting Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone for your salvation, friend, understand this. There's no sin. People will say, oh, I've done this. I've, you, don't, you don't know how bad I am. There's no sin too big for God to forgive you. For those of us who are blessed to be in Christ, we should understand at the other end of the spectrum, there's no sin too small to grieve our Lord and Savior. But back to the question that I posed just a bit ago, why did Paul interrupt his flow of thought here with verse 30? Well, what is the chief purpose, or what is one chief purpose of the Holy Spirit? Especially here in Ephesians, it is to build the body of Christ. How does God, how does the Holy Spirit build the body of, of Christ? What does he use? Words. The word of God. The Holy Spirit works cum verbum and per verbum, with the word and through the word, but never sine verbum. He never 
works without the word of God because the canon of scripture is closed. God has given us everything that we need here in the pages of scripture, even back again to the gifts and the uh, back in verses 11 through 14 and the importance of word through here. I believe this is why Paul interrupts his flow of thought here with this great statement on the Holy Spirit. And since I made the comment I did before about my favorite go-to passage for biblical counseling is let him who steals stop stealing. I'll give you a quote from Jay Adams from the Christian Counselor's Manual where he had these sage choice words about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the context of the word of God. This is what Adams said, quote, the work of the Spirit isn't mystical. The Holy Spirit's activity often has been viewed in a confused and confusing manner, but there's no reason for this confusion. The Holy Spirit plainly told us how he works. He works through the scriptures. The Bible is his book. He inspired it. He moved its authors to write every wonderful word that we read there. He did not produce the book only to say that it could be laid aside and forgotten in the process. Godliness does not come by osmosis. And there's no easier path to godliness. It always requires the prayerful study and obedient practice of the word of God, end quote. So, beloved, what flows from our lives and which is what is stored in our hearts when we are filled with the Holy Spirit under his control, control under his direction, according to the counsel he's given us in the Bible. And then lastly, this exhortation here at the end of verse 30 is based on your, secure, your security of your position in Christ. Paul says, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, we earlier, back in chapter 1, verse 13, Paul had already encouraged us at the end of this magnificent sentence from verse 3 through verse 14, this one long sentence in Ephesians chapter 1 talked about the fact that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him, which brings out our identity in Christ, our ownership by God, the authenticity of who we are in Christ, and our security be, virtue by virtue of our being sealed with the Spirit. Beloved, this seal guarantees everything God promises to us in this letter, starting from the heavenly blessings of chapter 1, verse 3, and all the way through. It's a preserving seal which locks you in your faith, and it's a preserving seal that locks your faith in you. You are sealed and it is to be revealed in the day of redemption when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ in glory and everything in between, everything in between from your conversion to your glorification and everything that's taking place right here, right now. Beloved sir, Joshua Reynolds was an 18th century English painter. He specialized in portraits. He was one of the founders of the Royal Arts Academy. And in fact, he was his fir the first president of that Royal Arts Academy. He was knighted in 1769. There was one time when someone came up and regarding a particular painting that Sir Reynolds had painted, asked him, how long did it take you to paint that? His answer was, all of my life. Beloved, everything 
everything in your life has prepared you for a time such as this. Whatever masterpiece, whatever work, whatever small ministry or large ministry from a human perspective, all of your life, all of your walk with Christ, all of the masterpiece, the magna opera of all of us together and the magnum opus of each of us individually is preparing us for a time such as this. And our Christian life is a life of continual transformation. God takes great pains to help us understand, verse 1, verse 17 forward, that it's a walk, it's not a rest. There is a supernatural Sabbath rest which awaits us in heaven, and at some level we enjoy and experience now while we are walking, while we are working. Beloved, let us press on to the high mark of our high calling in Christ for His glory, for your joy for the blessing of one another, and for our witness to this lost and dying world. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you, Lord God, for what you have already done. When we consider the sin of the world, when I consider my sin, when each of us would consider the tangled mess of the sin in our lives. We praise you and thank you, Lord, that our salvation is not dependent upon what we could do or do do. Our salvation is a gift from you. And, Lord God, we praise you and thank you that as you continue to untangle the mess of sin in our lives, Lord God, that you enable us to do these things, that the path becomes more clear, that we have a greater brevity and lightness to our step even as we pursue you and follow in your footsteps and it is for your glory and for your honor lord jesus that we want to study and own these great words and be obedient to what you call us to and it is with these great truths in our heart and mind that we close out our prayer and we sing and it's in your name lord jesus that we do all these things amen